This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Scott Galloway. And today, Kara is out. Uh, We'll talk more about that. So we're happy to be joined by MSNBC anchor and NBC News senior business correspondent, Stephanie Rule. Stephanie, how are you? Uh, I am very well. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's a rare day that Kara is not here, but it's a big day for her. And so I'm happy to to pinch it for the day. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it took a miracle to bring us together, Stephanie. It it would take a miracle to keep us apart. But in this instance, it was a miracle to bring us together. Kara and Amanda have welcomed a baby boy, a beautiful bouncing baby boy. Rumor is that um, they have decided, and I'm humbled to name it Scott, the last part of that is not true. I thought it was named Elon. Oh, thanks for that. Thanks for that. I think this is a huge victory for women. I want you to 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 comment on this. But typically, it's only been men who have a family, get divorced, make a shit ton of money, and then marry someone much younger and start a second family. So I think it's nice that women are, get, are getting in on this action. Your turn. Wow. That's how you're referring to Kara? Oh, come on. She's a baller. Nothing wrong with that. Having having a new family. I think it's a good thing. I encourage Listen, it. I'm thrilled about it across the board. I'm going to remove it from Kara. But I, I, I do think you're right in that um, the way we look at couples, the way we look at power structures, you know, if you see uh, an older guy with a younger woman, you're going, oh, yeah, that's a baller guy. And it is what it is. That's you right. almost never see uh, the reverse. I'm not going to say that's Kara. I'm going to say Kara Swisher is living her best life unapologetically, as she always has, and more people should do the same. Right on, sister. Okay, let's move on to less interesting and aspirational things. Steve Bannon surrendered to federal authorities on Monday. He was indicted on criminal contempt of Congress last Friday after refusing to comply with the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The House of Representatives finds Stephen K. Bannon in contempt of Congress for refusal to comply with a subpoena. He's expected to appear before a judge as we record this. Meanwhile, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, may also be indicted. He's ignored the committee as well. Stephanie, you've been covering this. What are your thoughts here? Begrudgingly, because blah, blah, blah. What are we doing today? Giving Steve Bannon and Donald Trump exactly what they want. Breaking news, Steve Bannon walking into a federal courthouse. Steve Bannon, who's an extremely wealthy man who Mm -hmm. doesn't ever want or need to conform. He doesn't truly care about politics. Remember, look at interviews you've seen with him years ago. He has studied authoritarian regimes. His goal was always, let's just blow up the system. 
So he walked mm-hmm. into a courthouse today, walked, sauntered in, smiling, waving, talking to journalists, promoting his radio show. And what's going to kill me the most? Tomorrow morning, if we're sitting here using sound bites from crazy stuff he's going to say on his radio show today. And I struggle with this because, you know, the, the Trump school of thought has always been go shameless or go home. Right. There mm-hmm. is no such thing as bad press. And here we are across the board talking about him. And, and, and it's this question to the Department of Justice and Democrats, like how many more times is it we're going to get him? Subpoenas coming. They're in trouble now. And, and and yes, he's now appearing before, you know, surrendering himself. But everybody else takes their subpoenas and blows their nose with them. These subpoenas have made the most important birdcage lining we've seen over the last four years. And this is a moment where if you're going to subpoena these people, what are you actually going to get out of it? He did bad things. Let's see it. Steve Bannon, he loves being a Trump martyr and he loves the fact that he can be, and you're going to see the likes of Mark Meadows and others, not be able to take it to the wall as far as Bannon can, because those guys actually need to make a pay check and they want to have jobs going forward and they want to be relevant, Bannon wants to blow up the system. What do you think? Well, I, I'm curious. I was sort of more hopeful in the sense that I, I believe two of the biggest threats to our society right now are insurrectionists and rejectionists. And rejectionists sort of this exclusive culture that me and my colleagues are a part of where we reject, take pride in rejecting 90% of people to upward mobility in college. But I think insurrectionists specifically elected officials who kind of urinate on the Constitution and won't even acknowledge the safe and efficient transfer of power um, and won't won't endorse or authorize whatever the term is the election. I, I think of them as insurrectionists. And the people who were uh, provided agency and were party to this insurrection, you know, I think should be strapped to a cannon and have their remains shot out over over the, the hills of Washington, D.C. But anyways. OK, that's, but hold on. That is. Don't get hyperbolic. Like, let's get real in that how serious it is. If we let these people ignore the law, if democracy stops working, how devastating that is. And a lot of people don't realize that. But we are. But but I am hopeful we are putting we are sentencing many of the people who stormed the Capitol to jail. We are putting them in prison. We are tracking them down and prosecuting them. I saw this and what you're saying, and you might you might be right, you're closer to this than I am. I saw this as progress, that he has, as you said, waved the middle finger at these subpoenas, and now we are coming for them. We are, we are you know, arresting them or asking them to report to the Department of Justice. You don't think this is going to amount to anything? I want it to. I agree with you that it is progress. Uh, It's frustrating that it's taken as long as it has. And you just want to be sure that what we're actually watching them do is run the clock. Right. Mm -hmm. Trump himself hasn't even exerted executive privilege. It's absurd that Steve Bannon is saying executive privilege. He didn't work for the administration. He was just a private citizen doing who knows what. Right? Well, that's like, and that, Trump that's like, is no longer and Trump is no longer the executive to, no to claim the privilege. So, but, so yes, I agree with you. It is it is a huge positive to see these insurrectionists being sentenced. I mean, they are facing real jail time. Um, mm-hmm. It's good that that Steve Bannon has to turn himself in. I guess my enthusiasm is far more tempered than yours is yep, because yep. you know I believe it when I see it. Yep, you know, yep. I'm still waiting on Trump's taxes, aren't you? 
There you go. We'll move on from Ben. And let's talk, speaking of kind of arrogance and megalomania, Elon Musk keeps bullying U.S. senators on Twitter. This week, his new victim or new target, Bernie Sanders. Elon told Bernie, I keep forgetting that you're still alive. If I were Senator Sanders, I would have responded, yes, alive and legislating, bitch. But anyways, uh, Bernie has more grace than me. After Sanders called for billionaires to pay their fair share of taxes. Last week, Elon tweeted aggressive insults at Senator Ron Wyden and an insufferable numbskull, the dog. What, what is your uh, view of all these uh, late night tweets from Elon? Listen, I think, I mean, you, you, you've been in the, you, you're closer to the line of fire than I am. You mean in the line of fire. <laughs> I think it's hugely disappointing, right? Yeah. The, the, Elon Musk is one of the most successful, brilliant, wealthiest people on planet Earth. The wealthiest. And what he's yeah. proven himself to be is like the world's most expert Twitter troll. And it works. I mean, this nonsense last week of I decided to conduct a Twitter poll about selling stock. Yeah. If you believe that, then then please Time to make me the cover of next year's Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, if you believe that's sincere. No, Elon Musk is looking at his extraordinary inflated stock price and saying, mm -hmm. there is nothing that justifies this. I'm going to take the money and run. But by saying to the world, you guys decide, should I sell a little bit of stock here? Somehow he has snookered people and they believe it. His expert level of trolling is so hugely disappointing given the position of power he's in, but I'm also blown away by how it works. Yeah, it really is disappointing because you're, you just got to give it to the guy. And first off, he's putting people in space. He's electrifying the world. It's just impossible not to acknowledge his immense accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he aggregates 40 or 50 million followers who I think are predominantly young men. And they really look to this guy for leadership and as an example. And he sets a tremendous example on a lot of levels. And then he says to Bernie Sanders or Senator Sanders, oh, I forgot that you were still alive. Or he makes a very crude statement around Senator Wyden, and you weren't, okay, on a risk-adjusted basis, that just is, I don't see how that's good for Tesla, because these people actually are pretty powerful, and just financially, or from a shareholder standpoint, they can pass laws that are bad for Tesla, much less Elon. It's also, what does that do to young men's impression of the greatest deliberative body ever, and okay, that's the U.S. So Senate? Your last point, I think, is the best one, because is it really bad for Tesla? I'm thinking, no. Is he really pissing yeah. off lawmakers and they're going to seek revenge? I highly doubt it. Mostly because when you actually look at what lawmakers do, yep. Republicans win and lose, Democrats win and lose. But you know who wins every time, no matter what? Really, really, really wealthy people. Right. I, I would be surprised if I saw some egregious regulation that's going to hurt Elon Musk or Tesla as a result of this. But mm -hmm. watching him... Um, unnecessarily humiliate, disrespect our elected officials is is beneath the position of immense power that he's earned. And it's just disappointing. Yeah, you'd think he would show, I, I don't know the word I would use, you'd, you'd like to think he'd show a little bit more grace. But anyways, this was, it was really, I mean, it's entertaining, but it's sort of, okay, no, is, it, is it? Well, sure. I, I do think that there's a large population of people that found Trump and Elon's form of irreverent behavior after hearing all these 
all these people in public life pretend they like each other and act civil and never really say anything. I think there's a certain authenticity to these statements that people are really drawn to. They're very raw. Yes. They're not they're not managed by six PR executives. Say this, but don't say that. You know, the the CEOs of General Motors and most, you know, and most senators and presidents kind of get to a mic and say a whole lot of nothing. A hundred percent. These guys do tap into an authentic an authenticity, a certain lack of self-consciousness, a certain lack of, I'm going to say what I believe real time, that people are very drawn to. The question is, has it just gone okay. has it just gone too far? Scott, I'm drawn to it too. I just want them to pull back 20%. Yeah, because the problem is, day, yeah. your average person in a position of power is no longer speaking anywhere near close to their mind because they're so worried they're, they're so consumed with saying on script and saying absolutely nothing. It gets us nowhere. And that's a problem because I do want to hear from the smartest minds in science and business and technology and government, right? I want to hear from them. But at this point, so many of them say nothing out of fear of getting crushed yeah. that it's refreshing that the Elon Musks of the world, right? Like a, a, yeah. a junior version of it years ago is when Jamie Dimon used to get himself in hot water. Right. When he would be insensitive for what he would say and people would crush him for it. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be criticized. But when you go after these people so hard, their response is that I'm just going to say nothing. And I'm not complimenting or insulting Jamie Dimon, but I do want these people to speak. I just wish that Elon Musk could take the power that he has, speak the truth that he does. But remember, come on, like you don't need to say you're still alive, are you? And Scott, to me, that comes from adrenaline addiction. Elon, like the rest of us, have been home for a year and a half. Guys like that are are used to going into the office and their factories and sporting events and getting worshipped by everyone around them. They're not getting to experience that right now, so they're going to get worshipped on Twitter, and that part's sad. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's I have a little bit of part. One of the strangest things that's happened to me is uh, when he tweeted at me. uh, It didn't. I don't know. I didn't. For some reason, it didn't really impact me because I don't think we have much crossover in terms of followership. But my 11-year-old son came home from the fifth grade on Thursday, the day after, and he said, just kind of try, trying to be coy, he goes, Daddy, he said, what's a numbskull? And for those of you who don't know, Elon Musk called me an insufferable numbskull. And I'm like, oh, no, he saw the tweet. And I'm like, why are you asking? He said, well, because people said that your dad is a numbskull, that Elon thinks your dad is a numbskull. And I said, oh, it's just Twitter, buddy. People say mean things about each other. You don't need to worry about it. But I thought... The fact that this so fast traveled to the fifth grade in Gulfstream and that my son comes home worried that Elon, who he's taught and admires, thinks his dad is a numbskull. I'm like, wow, this has really gone full circle. This is really, there's something weird and wrong about all of this. That full circle is about the mob that everything is black and white for. Somebody's the hero and somebody's the villain, right? I think it was like two years ago. Elon Musk tweeted at me and I was wrong. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't even remember exactly what it was. It was, I had read an article about how Tesla, and I'm probably getting this wrong, maybe doesn't match 401ks or something like that. And I think I just posed it as a question. Like, what's the deal with that? How could he do that? And he came at me and said, because people get stock. And I was wrong. I, I think that's what it was. And 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 that's obviously helped my people way more. And I was like, you know what? You're right. My bad. You know, Glad you're doing that, right? To me, you can have a provocative, you can come at somebody and they can come at you and you could say, great, I just got smarter for it. However, that mob after that 
just goes so hard that you're the worst person ever, or you're a numbskull, or you're an idiot, or you're this. And that's what's unfortunate. You and I could yell at each other all day, but as two people who are invested in making the world better and smarter, and without a doubt, that's what Elon Musk is doing, he can leave um, the, the, the sucker punching people on the side knowing what a powerful influence he is. So let's let's move to tweeted that at you if he knew it would have come back to your fifth grade son. And I guess that's my hope. Like, Elon. Oh, see, I think you get more credit than that. I don't think he gives a shit. I don't I if he doesn't realize at this point what 40 million people do when he just kind of errantly dunks on people, if he doesn't realize the second order effects of that. He's smarter than that. He knows. You just do don't give a shit is the bottom no, line. I Anyways. don't think so right there. When, when you even take a, a school bully, when they make fun of someone, mm-hmm. they don't ever realize the impact on that person. They don't realize how it impacts them and their brother and their sister and their friend. Like when somebody's throwing a punch, they never mm-hmm. think about the reverberations. And you're right. Maybe he, it, it's not in his. But if you actually said to him, I want you to know this is what came back from my son. He's a human. He's a dad. Right. Like I remember when he was on SNL, you were the person after um, and you gave him a lot of credit. And when he was on SNL and he actually showed this shred of vulnerability, that was sort of like to me his kind of winning moment there. And I think that's what you had said after. So if he doesn't give a shit and he has this zillion person following, I hope he starts giving a shit because he can do great, even better things than he does. Yeah, and by the way, I don't want to dramatize it. It wasn't it wasn't a big deal. Um hey, you, come on, you are an unskull, Scott. Yeah, well no, but I'm sufferable. You suffer right. with the dog every once in a while. You know I'm sufferable. Yes, that's true. You are a sufferable numbskull. And I'm there into- you go. Hundred percent. So just real quick, uh, let's talk let's talk about that tall drink of Texas lemonade Beto. I'm running for governor and I want to tell you why. This past February, when the electricity grid failed and millions of our fellow Texans were without power. They were abandoned. What do you think of this? Listen, we'll soon find out, right? Because mm-hmm. when, when people talk about the Lone Star State and what Texas is, um, it's confusing. We're forgetting that the demographics in Texas have changed so much in the last yeah. 10, 20 years. Look at the city of Austin, Texas. Um, it's exciting that he's doing this. Uh, you know, Matthew Dowd, a former Republican, is running for lieutenant governor. Um, these are not, uh, these are not, uh, super far left progressives. These, these are kind of like this new level of what more, more centrist Democrats could be in a state like Texas. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting. But at the end of the day, this is a state that has the most restrictive abortion laws. This is a state that, um, is having, you think about South Lake, Texas, and firing a, a principal over critical race theory that they're not even teaching critical race theory. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to pay that principal for the next two years. Imagine the school district having that kind of money that they're so offended by a principal who didn't actually do anything wrong. They're going to pay him for another two years when that's the that person's the highest on the, the, the food chain inside of a school. Imagine how that money could go to teachers mm-hmm. and janitors and actual students. So on one hand, wow, this shows that you've got the Lone Star State changing. But at the other hand, I don't know about that. Texas is Texas. Yeah. And, and he goes in with some real disadvantages. I think Abbott is already is sitting on a war chest of 55 million. It's going to be a challenge, but I don't know. I'm on board. I'm with Team Beto. I'm excited about it. But remember, you're on Team Beto from Florida and from New York. And remember how much support Beto had against Ted Cruz. You know, yep. Ellen DeGeneres and parties in New York City. He's yeah, got to win in point. Texas. Fair point. Okay, Stephanie, time for our first big story. 
Johnson and Johnson this week just, uh, announced that they're going to go through a breakup and that there's a general recognition that with some of these companies, the whole has actually become less than the sum of its parts and they're paying a conglomerate tax. Any thoughts on the breakups of GE or the self-imposed breakups of GE and J&J? Uh, I would just say from like a really nerdy, I'm an old person sense of nostalgia of like, wow, how corporate America has drastically changed in the last 20 years, right? I can't think of a more powerful conglomerate decades ago than GE. And now- Most valuable company in the world. (laughs) Jack Welch, best CEO. There they are saying all these pieces don't add up. We Mm -hmm. need to break up while you have- Facebook, Google, Amazon truly embarking on world domination, and they scoff mm-hmm. at the idea of breaking up. You, yeah, they're think? conglomerating. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And if you think, and by the way, it's a good move. GE has some great assets. And what I found when I've served on boards of companies, typically what happens is the CEO conglomerates because he or she gets paid more based on the size of the company. The compensation committee says, all right, the CEO of a company of this size generally gets paid between X and Y. In addition, in addition, the CEO gets to diversify their risk because with more distinct business units, they smooth out their earnings. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Investors don't need CEOs to diversify for them. I can go buy shares in an aircraft company and then in a health imaging company separately. I don't need the CEO of GE to do it for me. It creates complexity. And then what happens over time is the market begins to push back on this complexity. And when I was on the board of the New York Times, basically they would take assets, which were valuable assets, Seventh House Building in America, the uh, ownership in the Red Sox, About.com, a digital asset. They find the shittiest business in your portfolio, and then they assign that multiple to the entire business, and you end up paying a conglomerate tax. So the breakup is actually accretive. And look at PayPal, which was spun from eBay and is now worth, I don't know, five or 10 times but what the original parent Scott, was worth. you're also being rational, right? The mm-hmm. key for any CEO of a public- Sufferable even. I'm sorry, go ahead. growth, growth, growth. And when you cannot grow organically, which giant businesses cannot, they're like, let me merge, let me buy things. Even if it doesn't work in the long run, it works right now. And for CEOs, they don't live in a world of long term. Very few Mm -hmm. CEOs are founders who are, you know, who who have their C-class shares of stock who care about anything long term. They just need to win for the minute. Yeah, but there's a different, there is a difference between, so for example, I think when Google buys Waze or Amazon buys a lot of logistics companies, these bolt-ons that are sort of accretive to the current business operations. And then when there's ITT that owns OM Scott's, a fertilizer company, and, you know, I don't know, a peanut butter company. I mean, they're just, these things have nothing in common with each other. And there's, there's literally negative synergy because investors can't figure out what the opportunity is. Yeah, that was part of the comedy of the show 30 Rock. I'm Jack Donaghy, new VP of development for NBC GE Universal Kmart. Uh, we own Kmart now. No. Right? That, that, mm-hmm. that was like the basis of here's yeah. this microwave business. Like none of it ever made sense. Yeah. As and, nuclear guidance systems. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So no, I it's think not, it makes sense. I just think it for, you know, sort of corporate America historians, it's just like this bizarro moment of nostalgia and wow how the world's changed. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. The other thing I think I saw today was that Apple is putting the CEO, I don't know if it's the current CEO, or the former CEO of J&J which only speaks Apple's ambitions to um get into the healthcare business. 
Listen, it, the company's based in New Jersey, Scott. For me, you know, I'm, ba- I'm I'm rooting. I always root for any business that's rooted in that's based in New Jersey, Johnson and Johnson. Well, J and J has been one of the best performers in the Dow. I mean, it's 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 actually it's an incredible company, really really innovative, and has obviously played a key role uh, in the pandemic. All right, Stephanie, let's go on a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the great resignation and discuss supersonic air travel with a friend of Pivot. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month, taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Okay, welcome back, Stephanie. We're back with our second big story. The great resignation keeps getting greater. Last month, 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs. That's a new record. Some sectors saw more workers quit than others, including hospitality, education, and health services. Wages are up, however, and this is a big however, when you adjust for inflation, that's not true. Earnings are still down 1.1% on the year. Purchasing power is going down for people who have to spend a disproportionate amount of their income. What do you know? Lower middle income people on things like healthcare and education and food, which continue to skyrocket. I'm curious, I'd love to get your take. I went on CNN to talk about inflation on Saturday, and it was one of those experiences where about halfway through the segment, I realized I had no fucking idea what I was talking about. I'd love to get your take on inflation, whether you think it's transitory, what the view is from Washington, just sort of inflation, your turn. So the first thing I would say is- (laughs) You're exhausted already. (laughs) We cannot look at inflation in isolation. Okay, all of this is tied to the pandemic. And we do have to remember, while this is super difficult, especially for middle and lower income people, we have to remind ourselves where we were a year ago. This time last year, our restaurants were shutting down and laying people off. Fast forward a year, those same restaurants can't hire enough people. They're charging $20 for a hamburger. And here's the thing, though. We can't get reservations at those restaurants. I know. This is a really complicated thing. Even before Mm -hmm. the pandemic, we had a bifurcated economy. If Mm -hmm. you were invested in the market, if you owned a home, if you had a white collar job, you were doing really well. If you were a saver who didn't have any sort of market investment, who were lower income, you were in a really bad spot. Now, things have gotten only worse. So here's mm-hmm. where we are with inflation that, yes, the government knew it was going to be a rocky economic recovery. And that's why we saw a lot of accommodations being made, rent moratoriums, eviction, you know, uh, uh, mortgage moratoriums. We have the expanded child tax credit. You've got the families of 60 million kids right now getting, on average, an extra $430 a month because of that. We're going to see for for senior citizens on Social Security, we're going to see an inflation adjustment next year, 5.9%. Those are positive things. But here's the big problem here. One of the things that will push price, that'll slow inflation would be fixing the supply chain issues. That would be great. That's not going to happen overnight. Two, the Fed would actually take action and raise rates a little and stop buying bonds. That would be awesome if they would do that because it makes no sense. The last time inflation was this high, the early 90s, you had your Fed funds rate above 5%. What would be the problem if it was at 2% now? But the third leg is when prices are this high 
and demand starts to fall away, then businesses will stop raising their prices. But this is, uh, and this is something that people don't want to hear about. This takes you to when I say a bifurcated economy. Demand isn't slowing. While this is catastrophic for middle-income people, for low-income people, for wealthier people, we might not like higher prices, but we're paying them. We're expecting record holiday retail sales. We're going to get retail numbers from some of the biggest retailers this week. And while we're saying this is devastating how expensive gas is and how much cars cost, you can't find a used car because people saved up their disposable income. They own stocks. The value of their home is up. And so you've got wealthier people that can afford to pay these higher prices and they're lining up to do so. Unfortunately, those wealthier people that aren't really impacted by inflation, even though they don't like it, because they, they're paying more, everyone has to pay more. So what we're experiencing is sort of the worst case scenario for people at the bottom. Yes, there's more financial cushion, but these are the people that are going to suffer from inflation. And we keep saying to them, oh, it's just transitory. What does that mean? That's like saying, mm -hmm. oh, you're a little bit pregnant. We're going to deal with this for quite some time. And you bring up the great resignation. You know, the Biden administration is going to sign into law the hard infrastructure bill. Great. There, and we need new roads and bridges. We need Wi-Fi in rural America. But one of the things we keep hearing is, and it's going to create so many great jobs. Here's one of the issues, Scott. We have lots of jobs right now that are open that aren't getting filled. We saw an enormous amount of people quitting their jobs last month. So what is it that's going to get people to go back to work? And my last point would be, it's very good to see higher wages. We want higher wages. Mm -hmm. But if you think higher wages aren't impacting prices in some places, that's not true. Look at the restaurant business. When yeah. restaurants are paying their workers more, when their input costs go up, they're in turn raising their prices. Not to say that they shouldn't pay their workers more. They damn well should pay them more. But that does impact prices. And to simply not acknowledge that and say, screw that. Corporate America should pay people more wages and pay their CEOs less. I agree with that. I wish they would do that, but they're not going to. Yeah, right? how's that happen? Chipotle yeah. says my input costs cost more. My guacamole costs more. My labor costs more. And I'm going to charge you a dollar more for a burrito. We're buying- Worth it. We're, we, yes, we're buying lots of burritos. And when yeah, they have are. their investor calls, none of their investors are saying to the CEO, don't raise the price of your burrito. You should get paid less. So yes, in a perfect world, those executives would say, wait a minute, it's time to finally narrow the gap of worker pay and CEO pay. But they're not doing that. They're just charging more money. And right now we're paying that. And that is why it's so devastating for people at the bottom. But to say that like everyone's suffering, everyone isn't suffering. And that's what makes this complicated. And it's what makes inflation persistent. Yeah, it's really wild. It's sort of the perfect storm. If you think of inflation, just very roughly or crudely speaking, it's more dollars chasing fewer products. And so you have fewer products. A lot of them are trapped offshore or we're just having more you know hiccups in the supply chain so try and get a sub-zero refrigerator right now at the same time we put seven trillion dollars of additional cash into the system in europe where they have or ex they're experiencing the same supply chain problems you haven't seen this type of inflation because they haven't their stimulus hasn't been quite as i don't want to call it overboard but we i think we're coming to the conclusion we may have overdone it on uh, certain components of the stimulus side i want you to talk about that because when we say mm -hmm. maybe we overstimulated the economy people get very mm -hmm. upset and they say we shouldn't have given the stimulus checks we shouldn't have given expanded child tax credit no 
No, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Fed keeping rates at zero. Buying corporate bonds? Buying corporate bonds. Like, <laughs> let's say this one more time. I still, I, it's unfathomable to me. The, 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 the only people the Fed are really serving right now, keeping rates at zero, are over-levered investors. They're rich people, yeah. And if over-levered investors feel a bit of a sting, so be it. Yeah. It makes no sense why the Fed has been buying bonds below U.S. Treasury for all of these months and keeping rates at zero. Explain that well, to me. You also said, and I think you demonstrated leadership here, and I think you got a lot of shit for it, because uh, I got a lot of shit for it. And that is a $750 billion PPP where we created this cartoon of the cupcake bakery owner that just needed an extra little help to get to the other side. And it was firms like mine, Section 4, an edtech firm funded by multi-billion dollar VC funds. And we were eligible for a quarter of a million dollar giveaway. And my CFO came to me and said, just sign here. And we're going to get a quarter of a million dollars for the relief. I forget what it was called program. Mm -hmm. As long as we don't fire anybody. I'm like, fire people. We're hiring 60 people in the next three months. And I sat down with my board. And to their credit, they all looked around and said, we're not taking this money. Okay, you think about Scott, how many, how the, many other businesses did that? Very, well, very I, I'm virtue signaling, but I, my guess is the majority took it. But the PPP program, like a lot of the bailout, a lot of that $7 trillion, I've said this for a long time, we threw some loaves of bread and some circuses for the poor, and two-thirds of it ended up in the market such that the already rich could get much richer. We absolutely overdid this. A hundred percent. And right now, when you look and you say, what has the economy done for savers? Nothing. You literally earn zero. There is no rational reason why rates should be at zero at this point. They should be yeah. where they were after the financial crisis. Why? And that has caused the stock market to trade like a video game. And people say, like, listen, the Fed can't take action now. It would spook the market. So tell me, what does spooking the market means? Would it yeah, mean that, that mean? the market would get shaken and maybe we would start trading anywhere near fundamentals? Okay, that might be constructive and okay. And you know who benefits from this kind of disruption or these gale force winds of tumult and volatility and the market going down 20 or 30%? Young people. Because I don't know about you, but when I was coming into my prime income earning years, I was able in 2008 to buy Amazon and Apple for one twelfth of what they're trading at now because the market let things crash. And now all we're doing is... Uh, aggregating and accumulating all this dry brush. And, and when you don't let the gale forces of disruption howl, all you are doing is transferring opportunity and, and capital from young people to old people. To keep, to keep the current rich rich or make them richer is nothing but siphoning opportunity from young people who would like the opportunity to buy stocks and homes in Brooklyn on sale. And the government was not comfortable letting them go on sale. Okay, this is Scott. That's because yep. we have seen corporate America and investors figure out a way to browbeat, to influence, to headline influence the Fed into keeping the punch bowl full. There's yeah, no reason, right. right? Go before COVID. Go before Trump was in office. Remember before Trump was in office when he would argue against rates being at zero, mm -hmm. saying this is screwing senior citizens, this is screwing people on a fixed income. And then Trump was elected and he basically said to Jay Powell, you're my boy now. You better keep rates at zero because that's good for the market. It's mm -hmm. not. But investors know at this point, 
Let's just hang tight and the Fed will save us. Remember, you had the biggest private equity giants in the world using Steve Mnuchin, using Jared Kushner to make their way to the Fed to make sure that they were going to get bailed out, that all of their middle market companies were going to get bailed out. Those companies could have gone by the wayside, but those private equity giants are bigger than ever thanks to the money they've got from the government in the last year and a half. And then they just got a big French kiss from from Congress because carried interest is still in the tax law. Yeah, I just, I, 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 we've literally decided that we're just not willing to endure any pain whatsoever, especially the shareholder class. That so we're just want to, I mean, we're literally the mother of all kicking the can down the road. At some point, we're going to start breaking toes. It's just but a, we a are matter willing of to let our poorest, most vulnerable people suffer, right? We're sitting here continuing to debate. Hold on. So we don't think it makes sense to give four weeks paid leave after a family gives birth, right? And I see all sorts of lawmakers willing to say, oh, we're going to think about that. Yet I can't find one single lawmaker to come on my show and explain to me why the full value of a private corporate jet can get written down year one. Now, they signed off on that. That's in our tax law. Nobody talks about that, but they were wink, wink, nod, nodding all their way to the bank. So it's okay for somebody buying a private corporate jet to write that whole thing down year one, but we can't get enough Congress people to come on board and say, just a few weeks after you give birth to another human. So that Yeah, but it, it all plays into, and this is where it's going to come back to haunt the economy. We've seen this great resignation if you really drill down on it, it's the great resignation of women. And that is the female participation in the labor force has regressed 30 years because the bottom line is a lot of schools are still having interruptions. And because we don't offer uh, uh, childcare, affordable childcare, a lot of women have decided, you know what, I just can't handle all of this. And I'm, let's be honest, it's usually the women that are the caregiver, both up generation taking care of parents or down generation taking care of kids. And unless we give them some capability to return to the workforce, uh, they're not going to. And so it's becoming an economic issue. Even the word choice you use there, right? Yep. Women are choosing to stay home. Go to any one of these families' homes and it's see, not what, a choice. see yeah. what a disastrous, chaotic year this yeah, 100%, 100%. is. 100%. And, and what learning loss has been like for children. And I will say... The one thing successful working parents throughout history, most more often not working mothers have in common is we've all had good child care. Yeah, agreed. And a school, a good school to, a to school, manage your kids' right? education. Yeah. So so we keep you know, you have parents who are in despair over this, mm -hmm. right? It's almost yeah. right at 3:30 today, I don't care how good either one of us is at our respective jobs. If we knew that our kid needed to be picked up at school and we couldn't get there and they were sitting in that weird chair outside the vice principal's office with their feet dangling, you've been in that chair before I've been in that chair. Even if it was only twice in our lives when our mom was mm -hmm. late to pick us up, that scars mm -hmm. you forever. All of us know that. And so you've mm -hmm. got parents who are saying, I just cannot manage this unpredictable school and going back to work. And they have gotten some additional support from the government. So they're saying, yeah. let me just take this time to get my household in order. But this yeah, whole like people are just sitting home and living it up. Show me where this has been a tr very difficult year for working families. OK, Stephanie, it's time for my interview with a friend of Pivot. 
Okay, let's bring in our friend of Pivot, Blake Scholl, founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic. Since the Concorde shut down in 2003, the world has been without passenger supersonic air travel. Blake hopes to change that. He said he wants Boom Supersonic jets to fly to any destination in the world within four hours and for $100 eventually. So this was my idea. I am super excited about Boom and, quite frankly, just the change in quality of life uh, that would register if we're able to get back to supersonic travel. Welcome, Blake Scholl. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. So let's bust right into this. I think a lot of people feel that, especially I've spent the majority of my professional life on the road, thought that, okay, a huge unlock would just be supersonic travel. And I remember reading somewhere that uh, if you if you factored in maintenance delays, that it was actually faster to get from New York to London on a traditional 747 than to take the Concorde, that the technology and the engineering just wasn't there. What has happened in the last 50 or 60 years that now makes supersonic viable? Well, we've had a change in basically every fundamental airplane technology except speed. So we've got new lighter weight materials like carbon fiber composites. Uh, we've got significantly more efficient turbofan engines that are cleaner and quieter. We've got sustainable fuel, which supports uh, carbon neutrality. And last but not least, we've got digital engineering, meaning we can iterate much better on our airplane designs and come up with aircraft that are significantly more efficient. And so that's uh, you know, the big problem with Concorde really was, was cost. A, a round-trip ticket across the Atlantic on Concord, and today's money would be about $20,000. And for most people, that is uh, a bucket list item. It's not transportation. And so it wasn't a scalable product. It didn't have economies of scale. But uh, fast forward to today, the overture aircraft will be profitable at fares 75% lower than what was charged for a Concord. And what that means is this is, can be much more like a business class kind of experience. It can work on hundreds of routes around the planet and really change the way tens of millions of people uh, get around the planet. But so so there were a lot of issues with the Concorde. Um, let's start one by one. The booms, uh, the sonic booms were a real problem, right? What, 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 if anything, has changed around the environmental impact of just the sonic booms? Well, there are really two noise questions mm -hmm. that, are, that are historically challenges for supersonic aircraft. Uh, one mm -hmm. is the engine noise. Uh, Concorde flew with converted military engines that were just rip roaring loud, and so it, you know, it, it, forget sonic boom, it rattled the windows, you know, mm -hmm. around yeah. JFK or Heathrow. Right. And so you have to solve that problem, and that, and you solve that problem with some innovations in the aircraft design, mm -hmm. uh, but also by using modern converted commercial engines. And so Overture meets the same noise standards as any modern subsonic aircraft. Uh, so you won't notice when when Overture flies over if you're in an airport community. Um, mm -hmm. And then with the sonic boom uh, is uh, uh, is a complex question. Uh, you know, as you may know, today there is still a ban on supersonic flight over land that was yep. put in place in the 1970s. And so it should have been a noise limit, but instead we literally put in place a speed limit. And so mm -hmm. from a regulatory perspective, it doesn't matter how loud the sonic boom is, you're still not allowed to fly over land. And mm -hmm. so the way we're approaching that is with Overture 1, we're focusing first on transoceanic routes. Uh, mm -hmm. So we'll be two times faster over water. Over land, we'll fly right under the speed of sound, so you never make any kind of sonic boom over land. And it turns out those are the those are the flights, you know, LA to Sydney, New York to London, San Francisco right. to Tokyo. The flights that are transoceanic tend to be the most painful ones today. So it's a great place to start. And uh, and then in version two, when you can get from Tokyo to Seattle in four and a half hours, 
Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes longer than that to get from Seattle onward to Washington, D.C. We expect to get great support in converting that uh, that, that speed limit into a noise limit, and then Overture 2 will be able to do transcontinental overland flights uh, unrestricted. And can you see, is it, once you get over, so you slow down to pre-sonic pre or um, subsonic, and then once when you hit the West Coast where it's populous, and then you get to Montana where there is no no one, you can go supersonic again. Is that is that kind of what you're what might well, happen? Well, uh, uh, I think there's an I think there are kind of three stages to this. Stage one is supersonic flight over water, high subsonic mm -hmm. overland. Stage mm -hmm. two is supersonic corridors, and mm -hmm. actually Kansas has already announced that they're going to have a supersonic corridor. I love that. Uh, Australia has announced there's going to be one between uh, Sydney and Perth. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Yeah, It makes so much sense, absolutely. So I think that'll be phase two where you've got specific corridors. And then phase three, uh, with sonic boom mitigation technology on the airplane, you'll be able to have unrestricted high-speed flight everywhere. So that's that's the future. You just get there in steps. So I remember my dad used to take me to John Wayne Airport when I was a kid and cover my ears. And this was back when there was no security in John Wayne Airport before it was called that. It was Orange County Airport. It was basically a restaurant where they had gates and you just walked out. And we used to watch the 737s and the the Whisper Jets land. Uh, and uh, I'm just he, he always said to me that the engines were the more sophisticated technology, that the engines could actually go 1,000 miles an hour, but it was the fuselage and the avionics that didn't support the technology. What, where have the biggest advances in technology been, and where's the friction in what I would call reliable and economic or economical uh, supersonic flight? Yeah, so the, the big three advancements are aerodynamics, materials, and propulsion. And so from an aerodynamics perspective, uh, if you look at Overture next to Concorde, it is a much more intricately tailored airplane, thanks to optimization through digital engineering, ability to do thousands of simulated wind tunnel tests. You won't find hardly, uh, hardly a straight line anywhere on the airplane because it's so intricately tailored for high-speed flight. And then number two is lighter weight materials that also allow you to create very complex shapes. So the ability to build out of carbon fiber composites is a big deal. Overture will be a completely carbon fiber airplane, and you can actually mold the carbon into whatever shape you want. So you get this idealized aerodynamic shape out of simulation, and then you get uh, then you realize it with a strong, lightweight carbon structure. And then last but not least is the engines. And uh, and yes, yeah, so the engines for supersonic flight have been around for a long time. Uh, however, today they are cleaner, quieter, and more efficient than ever before. Who will you manufacture your engines. Are you a manufacturer, an assembler? Like what yeah, is well, vertical and what are you contracting out? It's, it's a great question. So uh, our industrialization looks very much like a Boeing or Airbus in that mm -hmm. we design the airplane, we own all the key IP on the airplane, and we assemble mm -hmm. the airplane ourselves because that's where you control quality. Uh, but we will work with some of the same companies that build parts for Boeing and Airbus on subcomponents for the airplane. So for example, Rolls-Royce has a dedicated team working on the engine. Uh, and we expect so it's going to, to be a Rolls-Royce engine, not a Pratt & Whitney. You chose Rolls-Royce. Yeah. Why did you choose Rolls-Royce over a Pratt? Well, they're the Rolls-Royce of jet engines. Well, there you um, go. But more, yeah, more seriously, uh, Rolls-Royce did the Concorde engine. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have a deep, uh, deep expertise in, uh, in supersonics. Mm -hmm. And uh, additionally... Uh, their their wide body engine technology is much more readily adaptable to high speed mm -hmm. flight uh, than what you find from other uh, other engine companies. So you mentioned Airbus and Boeing, and Airbus and Boeing wouldn't have been viable private businesses without massive indirect and direct subsidies. I mean, they have benefited from defense spending. I believe Airbus, at least initially, got huge government subsidies. 
Is boom, are, are you getting anything from this infrastructure bill? Uh, how do you make a commercially viable aircraft? What is going to be the cost to produce each one of these? And can you, unlike what I believe is other ma manufacturers, survive without that initial boost or steroid of government subsidies? Or maybe you're getting that. Yeah, we are completely privately funded today, aside mm -hmm. from uh, a relatively small amount of R&D work we do with the Air Force. How much money have you raised? Have you announced that? Yeah, no. Publicly, we've raised about a quarter billion dollars, $270 million. And how much will you need before the first for, before the first overture rolls off the assembly line? How much money do you think you'll need to raise? Uh, well, so the, the money we've raised so far has allowed us to build and roll out XB-1, which is the prototype. That, that aircraft is actually running the engines later this week on the aircraft for the first time. Uh, and then with Overture, we've got about a billion in equity to go. And uh, the interesting piece of the story is there's just significant capital leverage here, about a billion in development uh, costs, sorry, uh, funded by equity that levers mm -hmm. up through customer prepayment, supplier co-investment. Uh, and yes, we expect to get some incentives, for example, around job creation around the final assembly line. Uh, so the total between six and eight billion development cost. But then when you look at the sales forecast for this airplane, it sells at $200 million a copy. We're going to need about 1,500 Overture airplanes to carry existing international business travel supersonic. Uh, so that's about a $300 billion market. So that the capital, the capital is actually quite well leveraged. A billion in equity, six to eight billion in development cost, and then $300 billion market. And it's a, it's a high margin product as well, because this is a relatively small airplane. Uh, therefore, it, it actually costs less to build than a 787, uh, but sells for more than a 787 because it carries uh, the highest value passengers. And thanks to being faster, you can do up to twice the flights with the same airplane and crew. Yeah, so and this is this is sort of blowing smoke, but I believe it. I think you're vastly underpricing yourself. I think there's an enormous market at twenty thousand. I know a lot of people, and granted, some of this is a function of my my privilege, but there are a lot of people who would pay twenty thousand dollars round trip New York to London uh, to go in three and a half hours versus seven. There, I think the market at a much higher price point is much bigger. Than, than you would think. Because the bottom line is the sad truth is the top 1%, who is your market, have killed it the last 20 years. It's just to, a lot of these people are paying $80,000 one way to fly private. And if you offer them ten or 15000 one way to go twice as fast, it strikes me that there's just enormous, there's a, there's a, there's a really big market for this. Yeah, and I think you're right. There's a huge market, and especially in the early days, the, the airlines that adopt this first, as you know, United has placed the first firm order for overture aircraft, and the, the folks out there first are going to enjoy first mover advantages, probably really high market clearing fares. You know, but ultimately, you know, we want to continue to reduce the cost of high speed flight. Uh, because we want anyone, you know, anyone to be able to benefit from the ability to, you know, connect with people anywhere on the planet. And when you look at this, so when does when do you think the first one enters enters um, service? So we're about plane? three years away from first airplane mm -hmm. off the assembly line in twenty five. Four years mm -hmm. to start a flight test in twenty six, and our goal is to be certified through all the safety testing and ready to carry passengers in twenty nine. Got it. And so between now and then, you've got to raise another $750 million. You've already got a firm offer or a firm order from United. What does that mean? Does that mean they're actually, they've actually given you cash or it's just, yes. just, just a press release? They've given no, you capital. It, they've, given, they've given us cash, significant non-refundable money, and more of it coming uh, as we achieve milestones. Uh, United mm -hmm. has already spent far more money on Overture than British Airways ever spent on Concorde. So it strikes me that I would have thought that the natural place for this 
would be NetJets, not United Airlines, that somebody that the market amongst masters of the universe who want this plane, because my understanding is it's somewhere between the size of a Gulfstream 650 and a 737 or an Airbus Neo, that it's kind of in that middle market. Uh, how many square feet? Give us a sense of the size of the plane. Yeah, with a really generous layout, it seats mm -hmm. 65 passengers. And if, mm -hmm. if you put it in a you know business jet, private jet kind of configuration, uh, mm -hmm. you can put about 20 people on board and still have a stateroom and a living room and a, and a king-size bed. Um, so the, uh, the aircraft is primarily meant for airlines because of two things. You know, one, our, our goal is to build a, um, uh, a most affordable supersonic flight possible for as many people as possible. And number two, as long as that speed restriction is still in place over land, 80%, uh, for example, of Gulfstream miles are still flown over land. And so mm -hmm. I do think there's an opportunity in fractional fleets like NetJets uh, where it complements subsonic aircraft. And for example, you could fly from you know, someplace inland to the coast on a, on a Gulfstream, then, then hop on Overture and go across the pond, and you could go skiing in St. Moritz instead of in Aspen. Um, so it's, uh, uh, there, there's something there, but the, the anchor market is very much the airlines. So Blake, the only real friction I see in your business, bigger, bigger market, technology is advanced, feels like you have a leadership position here. I think the biggest obstacle is that you seem like a, a humble, graceful guy. I think you need to start being an asshole and tweeting out aggressive things to people and you'll start raising billions of dollars overnight. So Blake, bring out your inner Elon and start tweeting profane, vulgar things at people and everything will start falling into place. That's my advice for boom. Wait, <laughs> but I'm being serious, Blake. Real quick, what's your background? Biggest influences uh, in your life? I, mean, I do feel very lucky to have my dream job. Um, I'm a, a software guy by training, went to school for computer science. Started mm -hmm. my career at a little bookstore in Seattle called Amazon. Uh, got to have a $300 million P&L when I was 24 and mm -hmm. have been flying for fun since I was in college and never understood why you know, our e-commerce and our cars and our computers and our phones are getting better, but our airplanes are actually getting worse. And so I started Boom seven years ago, uh, intending to change that. I think this is so exciting. And just a quick fact before we sign off, it takes longer to get uh, from New York to Dallas on a commercial airliner now in the air. It's slower than it was in 1970. So I, while everyone's obsessing over FAR with Virgin Galactic and SpaceX, I think the real market is fast. And that's how do we get to our family, our business meetings, get to our you know, where we need to be faster. Uh, Blake, Char I, I think this is so exciting. I'm going to follow Boom really closely. And um, we really appreciate you being on the show. And if it's okay, we'd like to have you back on a regular basis uh, to update us on Boom's progress. I'd, I'd be delighted to. Scott, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Thank you for your support. Thank you. All right. One more quick break. We'll be back for Wins and Fails. Okay, Stephanie, it's time to move to wins and fails. Do you have a win and fail for us? Okay, the planet won on Friday because Taylor Swift's new album is out. Well, hold on. If she can, I'm sorry, if she can write a ballad about uh, because she went out with Jake Gyllenhaal for eight weeks, I can be emotionally unstable. If she can be that dramatic, I can be dramatic all the time. You are that dramatic all the time. You just have a lot less fans. They went out for two or three months, and all of a sudden, she's writing ballads about it? Come well, on. Guess what, Scott? That impacted her. 
that impacted her. Her now I feel release bad. on Friday, not just is her music a win, the, her reach, but again- Do you like the album? You've listened to the album? I know I've listened to the album. I if like I listen to a Taylor Swift album, I could slip and break a hip. You've actually listened to it? Yeah, of course I have. I'm a huge Taylor yeah. Swift fan, but more really? important, but I'm a fan of her music, but I'm a fan of Taylor Swift, the businesswoman, who yeah, woke up no, and repeatedly said, why don't I own my own music? I am going mm-hmm. to do it. And she mm-hmm. outsmarted the system and her fans came with her. Bravo, kudos. Her album's amazing. She was fantastic on uh, SNL. That skit that she did with Pete Davidson, Three Sad Virgins, was next level funny. I absolutely loved it. Uh, the other win has to be today. Um, the Biden administration is signing into law the infrastructure bill, right? Yeah, we, we, we as a country don't like politics, don't care about politics. Infrastructure is something we need. We have mm-hmm. crumbling infrastructure in this country. And the mm-hmm. fact that you were able to get Republicans and Democrats to sign on to this is a huge win. And I know it's being overshadowed by um, the fact that there's still the human infrastructure bill. We're wrestling with uh, inflation. We still have COVID. I'm not discounting any of those, but this that's a giant win for the administration. What's your win? Well, my win is the new Swisher. I talk a lot about happiness and young people. And what I finally learned is, as I got older is that relevance, the influence, your ability to make a good living, it's kind of all the means. And the closest thing I found to an ends, and I think just following your Instagram feed, I think you concur, is that there's just nothing more rewarding than, than figuring out a way to bring together the chaos and the alchemy uh, and the affection and the disappointment that is raising children. And so I think that people who are good people, people who have um, character, people who can create loving, secure partnerships with others so they can raise kids in loving households, I think that is that is the ends. That is what this is all about. So Karen, Amanda, I am thrilled for you. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for that lovely young boy. And it's good for the planet. The good, be- good people decide to have children. That's my win. Absolutely. Then I would couple my fail, I guess, this week. Uh, I'm experiencing some parenting fails uh, my, in my own life. And I think um, one of the hardest things, you can be tough as nails in business and in your own life. I think the hardest job that we have is parents. Mm-hmm. And when you make a decision at work, when you make a decision on Twitter and you fail at it, you suffer the consequences. I think parenting is by a mile the hardest job that we have, that I have. And uh, I'm struggling with it right now. I would say that's my own personal fail right now. But are you struggling? And obviously, I don't want you to reveal anything personal. Are you struggling because you have too many demands on your time and you feel like you can't be there? Are you struggling just for the natural order of having teenagers who are a struggle? I've got a, I have a teenager right now that um, is struggling and I'm not sure how to help them. And Again, in your own life, you can make decisions. And mm-hmm. when you make the wrong decision, you suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. And there's not a guidebook for parenting. And when you have a kid that's struggling, it makes me feel like I'm a human voodoo doll. That like the pain he's feeling is like a stake through my heart. And it's crippling. Oh, gosh. Any parent knows. And I'm, I mean this sincerely, Stephanie. I'm really sorry. We've, we're, we've all been there or are there. You have your world of work. You have your world of friends. You have your world of kids. Something comes off the tracks with one of your kids and every just everything shrinks to that kid. And and there's guilt, there's rage, there's uh, it just it's the it's hands down the most terrifying and upsetting thing I've ever been through. But um, anyways, I just get it's why Elon Musk. I'm telling you, he's a father. 
Mm-hmm. You wouldn't if he knew that your son heard you were a numbskull. Oh, I, 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 I want to be clear. That was like a five minute thing, and it just struck me. It wasn't a bad moment for me or my son. I don't want to pin that on Elon or anybody else. But you're right. It's when your kids come home and your your professional life. It was the first time for me. I bet this happens a lot with you because you're pretty, you're pretty aggressive and out there and brave with your personal life. Like I don't put my kids on social. You do. Cause I just couldn't handle the snarky comments people would make. They're hard. Yeah. And snarky but comments it's are really hard, but I also think that gives us the, honestly, putting your personal life out there mm-hmm. forces people that have you and my job to check ourselves when you could kind of fly off the handle. And that I really think my goal is to be practical, to try to help people mm-hmm. get better and smarter. And I, even if I screw up, I'm pretty honest with my kids about like, this is who I am and this is what I stand for, even if somebody's mm-hmm. yelling at us in a restaurant. Well, Stephanie, I'm let's- glad somebody's yelling at me in a restaurant, guys. It means they're watching and that's what just paid for this dinner. Well, Stephanie, let's let's finish where we started. We are thrilled that our good friend has brought another thrilled. child into this universe who will have the same struggles and tribulations that we're having. And uh, what I can say is, is that your upset and your stress right now is a function of the fact that we're fortunate enough to have these things we love so much. All our grief, all our anxiety is a function of our blessings. So thank you, Stephanie Rule, for co-hosting on this joyous day. Get back, get back to work. Keep it real. Keep it real. MSNBC news anchor, Stephanie Roll. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Angle, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Andretot engineered this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or, frankly, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.